Welcome to another episode of Tree Lady Talks and this week I'm sure everyone will be happy to know I've sent Sharon out to do a site visit and the reason I've sent Sharon out to do a site visit is because this week we are interviewing Sue James from TDAG who is going to talk to us about uh, what she does and what the organisation does and in order to just embellish that slightly I'm going to try and get Sharon on the phone, hold on a second. I'm going to do, try and do a video call, which will be absolutely marvellous. Hi. Hello, Sharon. Hi. Uh, I can see you. Can you see me? I can, but I've just got to step out the way a moment. That's Ooh, better. That was a close one. So, we're going to talk about TDAG today. What can you tell us about it? Well, TDAG is the Trees and Design Action Group based in the UK that brings together people and professionals and organisations from wide-ranging disciplines in both the public and the private sectors to increase awareness of the role of trees in the built environment. They produce some really great guides, it's all free. Things like first steps in valuing trees and green infrastructure and how to select the best tree and, and how to assess urban air quality. We're going to be speaking to Sue James, who's coordinating the work of TDAG and has done for many years. And so just, just as, a, as a preamble, what are, you, what, what are you seeing on your site survey today? Well, I'm seeing fairly well-protected trees. Oh, that's nice to know. Yeah, they're uh, just a great bunch on this site, so they have followed what I've actually said. Oh, well, that's handy. Well, I'll, I'll leave you to get on with it. <laughs> oh, mind that. Oh, it's another close See you one. Later. I'll speak to you a bit later on and we'll let you get on with it and uh, introduce Sue James from TDAG. You're listening to Tree Lady Talks. This is Sharon Durdent Hollenby. All music and production is by Noel Durdent Hollenby. And all views expressed by me or the interviewees are entirely personal. So, Sue, how did Trees and Design Action Group, known as TDAG, actually start? Right. So that was interesting. It was while I was consulting with Derek Lovejoy Partnership, and I was talking to one of the um, directors there, and we were just reflecting on the dependence London has on its plane trees, and we were wondering whether there was any sort of succession planning. You know, what would happen if if they got diseased, if they reached end of life, which I mean, I know could be for many of them still, you know, a generation away, but you know, what was our, what was the plan for succession? And we thought that was quite an interesting topic and, and building design magazine was sort of kind of trying to dr drag itself from buildings to take a bit more interest in beyond buildings. So I invited one of the journalists from there and we invited a few people to sit around the table and it kind of grew because I asked somebody and they said, oh, you must ask somebody. So in the end, we had the Forestry Commission, Royal Parks, Transport for London, you know, developers, Grosvenor Estate. I mean, people just, we had about 20 people around the table. So we all discussed this issue with enthusiasm um, and GLA came. And that was, as far as we were concerned, we thought, well, we've put a marker down about this problem. You know, there's going to be an article in BD. Hopefully people will pick it up. But the people who um, came to the table said, well, you can't leave it at that, can you? You know, you've, highlight, you've highlighted the problem. So what, what are we going to do about it now? So we all kind of agreed to meet again. 
um, somebody very efficiently came up with some terms of reference, which was then, it was sort of looking at London, but a forestry commission were very supportive too, I should add in, Jim Smith in particular. But then we quite quickly realized that this wasn't just a problem for London. This was an urban tree issue. So we um, sat around the table again. Then everybody decided what they should call it. And that sort of took half a day. But we wanted to have obviously trees. I was quite keen, you know, the Lovejoy said, we were quite keen that we include the word design because I think there's a huge amount to do with designing for trees. I don't just mean to look pretty. I mean, just actually how to integrate trees. And then we all wanted to have action. So we knew we couldn't actually be campaigning because if we were campaigning, then obviously a lot of the people interested in supporting it would be compromised. You know, Forestry Commission can't go out and campaign and stuff. So we decided we were an action group trying to sort of look at action that was needed. So that's how the Trees and Design Action Group came about. And then somebody, I think it was Pauline Buchanan Black, had a son who was a graphic designer. So he did, he started the logo idea off oh. for us. I wanted to ask you about the image of that. It, it's for anybody who hasn't seen how the, the TDAG documents look, they're all available on the website, which we're going to have a link to, but it has a very unique style and it's absolutely beautiful. So he sort of got a logo going, which is virtually like the one we've got now. But then if I take you through the process of what we did, um, you'll see how the, the style emerged. So we just wondered what our first action should be, <laughs> having sort of given, set ourselves up like this. And by then we had about 25 people regularly coming to the Lovejoy office. I think we were doing it sort of once a month at that time. And we really um, felt that we had to sort of highlight the issues. So the Tree Council were members and of course National Tree Week was coming up the following November, this to give you some time scale. We started the whole thing in January 2007, and we were just in a loose association. We had nothing beyond that, and anybody could join, and they still can. It's just a matter of putting their names on the contact list. That's all we ask of them, except that if they're an organization, they hand us on to somebody else if they leave. So we thought, okay, we've got to make a, a bit of a sort of splash about why, why we're so exercised about the question of urban trees. So we started writing um, a document, which we all did in a voluntary way, and it was very time consuming and very hard going, but it ended up as a document called No Trees, No Future, which we launched in the House of Lords in association with National Tree Week. I think by now we'd got to about 2007 or eight. That was sort of surprisingly successful. That had a bit of impact and people got quite interested in it. But then we thought, well, that's fine. We've kind of expressed all the problems, but we haven't really sufficiently come up with solutions. And so we started on a voluntary basis trying to sort out what trees in the townscape really meant. And then it occurred to us that it couldn't work like that. It, it was going to drive everybody mad. You know, everybody had their day jobs. Nobody had time to really do it. And at about that time, CABE was coming to an end. Can we just explain, Sue, what CABE is? CABE was the Commission for Architecture and the Built Environment. CABE I shall say it publicly, it was a wonderful organization. It did design review, which I found less interesting, but what it did that was very interesting was what was called CABE enabling. And that actually helped in design and development decisions for local authorities and projects and so on. CABE was one of the sort of sufferers in the bonfire of the quangos that um, happened in 2010. And we lost CABE and part of CABE went to design council, but we didn't have CABE. So some CABE employees were absorbed elsewhere and some decided to go off on their own. CAPE had 
been a TDAG partner. So Chris Edwards, who was the representative for CABE on TDAG, said, well, Anne Jalouzeau is thinking of setting up as a green infrastructure consultant. Why don't we talk to her about whether she could actually help research and write trees in the townscape? So Anne's based in London. Chris was going elsewhere, but Chris and I had a talk to Anne before CABE finally closed, and she said she'd be interested. So that kind of took us to another level. It took us to a slightly more professional level because um, we were able to run a sort of workshop with somebody who knew how to properly facilitate a workshop. We were able to discuss the issues, look at what we wanted to do, identify who could actually offer Anne positive research and information and feedback and usefulness. So in 2010, the GLA was a TDAG member, and there was a tremendous um, guy in the GLA in the urban design group, which they had at that time, called Paul Campbell. And Paul really looked at no trees, no future, and said, well, that's all very well, but my God, it's just pages of writing. We need to do something graphically. And he brought in Steve Parker from Reduction, who's now our permanent graphic designer. And Steve is really good because he actually is interested in the subject and is therefore is a bit of a partner in actually working out how best to present it. So he had obviously worked with Paul before on GLA things, so Paul brought him in. And we really worked hard at what looked like a very slim document called The Canopy but it kind of set this standard of actually using graphics mm. to get over messages in a very clear, coherent way. I, I agree. That's so important. They're so engaging and beautiful um, and a very distinctive style. And it's really, really important because people are time poor and there is an overload of, of things to read and search for on the internet. And yet these documents are so important. So the beauty of them helps me. You know, and, and people can see for themselves on, on the TDAG website, which we'll have a link to on our website. So we produced the canopy and that was launched. I think it was actually launched in the Natural History Museum by one of the um, GLA sort of, you know, Martin Powell was there, I think, at the time. So that then had shown this sort of way of presenting things graphically. So then when CABE had had its denouement ended and Anne was interested in helping with trees in the townscape, um, we had a, a workshop, we determined what we wanted to talk about, we thought about it, she went away and thought about it too, and then came, we came up with this idea of looking at 12 principles, and that was something very simple. Mm. So once we'd got a very simple scope, we were able to say, well, obviously we've got to pay you, Anne, and we have absolutely no money, so we'll have to go out and get some sponsorship. And because we had a very clear, you know, this is the document we want to produce, do you want to sponsor it? A lot of organizations find they can do that because there's something tangible. Yes, absolutely. It's much more difficult to get others, yeah. but you know, this is something tangible. So you can see on the back of the document who sponsored it, but a very broad group of people came readily forward and sponsored it. So we produced that, Steve did the graphics. Um, we sweated quite a lot over finding good pictures of successful tree planting. Yes. And I'll put a little marker up for that now. We still have problems finding pictures of successful tree planting that are standing the test of time, which is, of course, what a tree's got to do. We then launched that with um, the help of the Victoria Bid at National Geographic Society. So we had a great launch. We had a lot of support from developers, all sorts of people. We'd gone out before to a whole lot of heads of councils all over the country, and it was something we should have maintained, but we didn't really have the resource to keep doing. But if you look at the front of the document, you'll see all sorts of people, you know, leader of Newcastle City Council and so on and so forth, all saying this matters. It's still perfectly current. I mean, there's nothing out of date about it. 
the 12 principles remain. And probably always will do because they are core principles and it's the simplicity of it again and, and the graphic design makes it very easy to process and hopefully put into action. It's a real strength of all of the documents produced by TDAG, in my opinion. That kind of set things where you could then start this argument and this discussion that still goes on about the need for tree strategies, the tree, need for urban forest management plans, you know, all these things that we all know need to be embedded in local plans and policy. It would make life just much easier for everybody, including developers. So there is the hope with this interest in trees now with this planning white paper that that might be an obvious thing to do. I entirely agree with that. And as a consultant working um, within the construction industry, we look for clarity from the local authority. We absolutely need strong planning conditions and they need to stem from strong development management policies. And this document really makes that very clear. And of course, we need tree strategies within each local authority. But uh, I just wanted to echo that I think it's so, so important. And it's a very patchy picture across the UK, partly due to resourcing and, and political will. This is an argument that goes on quite a lot, but I think we're starting to win it. Tree strategies are different to green infrastructure strategies because trees are these large, long-lived, it's the kind of skeleton, you know, the... the um, framework for the whole sort of approach to green infrastructure. Other elements of green infrastructure can come and go. I mean, you might have a green roof today, but if the building goes, you might not have one. So the tree strategy really is different to a green infrastructure strategy, and it shouldn't be a subset of it, is one of the arguments that we most fully try and put. And also, if they were properly embedded in planning policy and they were in local plans, and they were clearly understood with this new proposal of growth and regeneration and protection areas the planning white papers looking at the local plans have got to be very clear about what they're requiring then i mean is there a possibility that actually everything because there's more certainty about getting planning permission if you satisfy the local plan requirements we might overcome some of those things of these conditions that then get argued about or viability that then gets argued about you know because value engineering as I understood it originally, was meant to make sure value was in the project, not that you're taking it out of the project. Part of my work is trying to keep in the value of what has been designed rather than take it out. And um, now more than ever with the planning white paper, which um, in the UK really sets up the government's stall for how land might be developed, it's never been more important to have clear documented policies and because it actually frees officers up. It actually is liberating because just generally in life, if one has a set of standards that are laid out, it actually then you can think about the detail of what's coming into you rather than having to constantly justify first principles. So let's let's hope that that happens. So we'd got um, trees in the townscape. Of course, the next question was, it's all very well telling us we've got to have all these trees, but do we actually know how to plant them in some of these difficult urban environments? And that led the way to trees in hard landscapes, which was, it was quite a difficult document to do. But this is where, very fortunately, Anne's kind of connections with France and generally connections and networking with research and what was going on really helped us because she was able to identify places. She just had 
the way she does her research, she has a lot of conversations. You know, we set up a steering group. Yes, I should say this about our documents. We always set up a broad steering group. We kind of discuss between us what the scope is of what we're trying to achieve. And that gives Anne her kind of brief as to what she's going to do. We then may suggest people she might want to talk to or she can come to the steering group and say, hey, I really need to talk to somebody who knows about something or other. Who can I go to? And then usually between us all, we can come up with somebody. She then has rather extensive interviews and discussions to really find out things. And then starts writing the, the first drafts and then the steering group all crawl over that and make their comments. So none of the documents have just sort of got through without quite a rigorous kind of peer review process, which means that it can be quite lengthy to get them done. We suddenly realized there was this wonderful man in Lyon called Frédéric Sigur, who was the, um, is the tree person. And he was doing the most wonderful work in Lyon. Now Lyon had gone from a city, a bit like Birmingham places where car was king, in the 60s, trees had been taken down en masse. Big highways had been put in to move vehicles at speed, you know, around all through this city. And there was a bit, started being a bit of a kickback against this. And luckily, Frederick came along at the same time. And the kickback had been Lyon had actually created a tree charter for the city, the first tree charter, which was quite groundbreaking, as I understand it. Frederick came along and they then developed a second tree charter, but Frederick realized that the barrier to planting trees, particularly street trees and trees in hard landscape, was the, the relationship with the highway authority, because the highway authority has a different set of objectives. And so he works very closely with the highway authority so that they actually work out how to integrate trees, suds, costs management and he runs an extensive tree estate in greater Lyon I think for much less money than we do on on much more modest situations here so he's kind of found how to do it and I think some of these role models are actually worth learning lessons from there are a lot of things coming on you know we've got climate change things are changing we're already beginning to see it here so that um, you know how's things going to be I mean it's no use saying hey it'll be great because Manchester can have palm trees more balmy nice climate, because on a global sense, that will mean somebody's actually frying everywhere else. So, you know, we, we have to be sort of conscious, but conscious of what's happening so that we can adapt and mitigate and, and the role that trees can play there. We had a, a lot of really good inputs for trees in hard landscape. We produced it as a printed big book. I think if we have the resource to review it, we'd probably help to break it down a bit to make it more extractable. And we've also found quite interestingly that although we thought we'd set out the process very clearly, there are still some people that want it to be even clearer. You know, they, I still have people saying, right, so, so what should the tree pit be? And I say, that's not a question you can ask. The question is a very different question. The question is, what are you trying to do? Why are you trying to do it? What's the situation you're doing it in? What are your underlying conditions? How are you going to satisfy the needs of the tree? Are you planting a number of trees? You know, there's a whole process that you go through to which you then make out of the various ways in which you can plant trees, the appropriate decision for that particular tree planting or whatever. But you can't, you can't just sort of have a one size fits all because you could get unintended consequences as we've kind of seen around the country, you know, when, when trees are accused of causing difficulty. Absolutely. It is um, such a great document. And as well as being a hardback copy, um, it is also available online, isn't it? Free to download. And it's one I've used many times. And, um, and what all of the documents do is they set out the, the problem very clearly and take you through 
a thought process so that you can come up with a bespoke solution that's suited to the environment and the culture and the requirements of, of why you're doing it. So that's that again is a real strength. I think it's really important for people not to be scared of the thought process, not to feel it's onerous or difficult, but actually see that it's incredibly logical and the outcomes can be pretty obvious once you've actually taken yourself through that process. And we've tried to write it in such a way that it makes sense to all those people that need to be engaged with it. It's not just for arboriculturists. We're trying to make it make sense for highway engineers or architects or master planners or planners, you know, it's so that they're sort of empowered to know what they could do. It's really at the essence of what you're trying to achieve is working by collaboration and interdisciplinary working. So the documents are for everybody who works in some way in the outside realm. I belong to a group called The Edge and we wrote a document. Well, we had a commission of inquiry on collaboration between the professionals in about 2013-14 and produced a, a book called Collaboration for Change, which is a little booklet which is available freely. And it was just saying we have to collaborate, we have to get out of our silos. And if there's one shout I think we all have is that on the whole, we've got national government in sil departmental silos, we've got local government in silos, we've got professions in silos all protecting their own. You know, and if we don't collaborate, we won't actually achieve those not just even nice to have visions, those actually necessary things that we now need to achieve if we're going to have long term climate and ecological resilience. It's just so important now and in a tiny micro example, I've got a meeting on Zoom this afternoon whereby um, there are some large trees growing in a raised planter. Not a good idea, but it happened in the 1960s frequently on social housing and the site's going to be redeveloped and these trees are going to be retained. Really important, they're next to the highway. And now I've set up a meeting with the engineers because I've been working with them to try and achieve a drainage strategy that doesn't harm the trees. But there are so many constraints, they still want to put the deep drainage right into the planter. So I'm sure that we can work together to find a solution. But five years ago, that conversation wouldn't have happened so readily. Definitely not 20 years ago when I was working in the industry or even 30. So things are improving and not only is collaboration becoming a lot more widespread, it's also the techniques are improving as well. Tell us about some of the other documents that uh, TDAG have produced. There are so many. So once you decided, you know, how to plant trees in hard landscape, you then couldn't help but question the tree species that you should be selecting. So fortunately, Andy Hirons up at Myersco had got an opportunity for some NERC funding to actually look at this. And of course, Andy's been working with Henrik Schoman from Sweden, who's now at um, Gothenburg Botanic Garden. And ha Henrik had been doing all sorts of really interesting research on urban trees saying, look, just get real. They are in an arid desert climate. You might think you're in temperate London, but forget it. For the trees, that's not the case. He wrote a brilliant thesis and he started making everybody think differently about the trees you should be choosing. So Andy and he have been working on this and Andy's produced our tree species guide, which is only online because this is the kind of document as, as it gets, if it can get more funding that just has to keep being updated because of course new tests are being carried out on different species the whole time. So that seemed a really important milestone to really empower people to be able to make the right decisions. It's a great document. So for any listeners who haven't seen that, go on to the TDAG website and search for that document because it's interactive. So you can put in various parameters such as 
what the the environment is going to be and you come up with this list and you can cross-reference it's so accessible and actually and the earlier point that Henrik made because he traveled around the world didn't he to produce this I think he ended up on a mountainside in China yes (laughs) over the days when we could travel But you see this in action in some of the London boroughs, some of the streets of the London boroughs, Hackney and Islington and many more, are almost public arboretums now, where they're really demonstrating how these novel, non-native species are thriving and creating great ecosystem services and beauty. And it's about cracking through that mindset from when I started my career in in the late 80s of only native is appropriate and certainly it is in rural areas but when we're talking about the fact that 80 percent of the population is urban the impact that those trees have on a great chunk of the population we've got to get the species right so that that was quite a game changer i think yes and on the website i think there's a video of andy explaining the document to people if they want a, a guide through it um the other documents we've produced um was of course one of the big issues and this may be one that will be short term but it's still got lots of implications so it's not just going to be resolved by moving from the combustion engine to EV is air quality in our towns and I think COVID again has shown that in areas of poor air quality people have suffered more which is you know shocking. We have a group in the Midlands looked after by Dr Emma Ferranti from the University of Birmingham and we worked out that if we continue to hold meetings in London or national meetings on Zoom as they now on are, it would be absolutely brilliant if she could run a series of seminars, which is usually on topics that members have said, hey, we, we need to look at this more. And then it's surprising, really, the best people for those topics are happy to come along and explain what they're doing. So she runs a seminar, so we alternate. We have a business meeting one month and a seminar the second month. But her experience is an urban climate. And of course, she works with Rob McKenzie, who's our sort of hero on air quality. So she produced a document called First Steps in Air Quality because we actually wanted to show people what works and what doesn't, because there's always a frightening tendency where people say, hey, we just need to plant lots of trees and everything's sorted. And of course it can't be and it won't be and they can't. And then the poor tree is sort of, hasn't done what it should have done, but it never could have done it. So we've kind of tried to set up basic principles that should be understood there. And similarly, a second, another document, which Emma and Anne produced on green infrastructure value, just looking at the different systems of valuation and trying to show you how to pick your way around which ones would be most useful for your project. It's a short document and it just sets out very simply what can feel overwhelmingly complex, the different methods of assessing tree valuation from iTree and CAVAT. Um, and other methods. So that, that again is a good, quick introduction. I believe that um, our assessment is going on a macro scale, looking at all of the services that trees begin, not just ecosystem services, but also valuation. And there are gaps in research as well. What we're now working on is trees planning and development, which has been a very complex document to do, not least because we keep getting changes to planning. So that will be an online document because it's no way we could print it. It would just immediately start being out of date. And Emma is working on a sort of urban climate, a little short urban climate, you know, in the line of first steps, Um, because that's a whole nother area where people are not understanding there's a whole role of trees to do with microclimate-based design. Yes. And the influence of trees, not only on 
what they can do for the local external microclimate, but also what they can do for the performance of these lower rise buildings. So your housing estates and all sorts of things, how they can actually improve building performance and where people might think, oh, those trees are shading my house now. If their windows are facing west and their arteries, they're going to start being extremely grateful for that shading and cooling. So that's another thing. If the government, if the planning white paper wants to see street trees in every street for new developments, then we're, we have got to get to grips with the resilient foundations that can accommodate them so that we don't develop the next round of um, subsidence problems with, you know, trees too close to housing. So that is coming along. And then the other one, of course, is the relationship of highways and suds and trees and what's the best way to do that. So there's some quite exciting work potentially going to take place in Glasgow with um, structural soil systems. So there's a kind of lots of watch this space, um, things that TDEG's doing, but also that other people who belong to TDEG are doing feedback into us. I think it's really good that you're working with highway engineers because their adoptable standards are often not tree friendly. And uh, I've got a couple of cases at the moment where that's quite critical. And um, I'm sticking my neck out and saying, oi, stop it. This is an important veteran tree. There's a couple of interesting things there. We had an interesting case in um, a, a city actually in Suffolk. The highway engineer was sort of giving people a bit of a runaround, saying that the Highways Act didn't allow this, that and the other. So we got an expert on the Highways Act to actually say, actually, the Highways Act didn't have any of those things in it. So he was sort of caught out and that was very useful. But, you know, people, I mean, you can't expect every ARB officer and everybody to know the Highways Act and the this, that and that act. But that's one of the things that we're, we're trying to empower people with so they do understand these things better. They do understand the current utilities legislation so they're not sort of put off by being given sort of false and outdated information by a utilities company it's all that sort of practical kind of um, empowerment that I think we need and also of course manual for streets is going to be reviewed and that seems to have some cross departmental input between MHCLG DEFRA and Department for Transport and I understand that Trees and Design Action Group is going to be asked to help with the kind of delivery side where we, we really do need technical drawings that speak highways to show how trees go in. This is trees integrated in your highways. Not only do you produce publications based on lots of research and collaboration, but you also have some research papers on the website as well, which say, where are we now with certain things? What do we know and don't know about the public health and social value of trees, which is something that's ongoing? And looking at some of the published papers, they identify areas of future research as well. So this is a, an ever-evolving area that we're in. Well, this is a little bit of an intro, isn't it, for trees, people and the built environment? <laughs> because one of the most, and this isn't just for arboriculture, I mean, it's across the board with, with, um, in, in my other sort of professional capacity, this getting research into practice. A lot of money is spent on research. Something in the order of 40 million a year is, is, is given to built environment research, which, I mean, is small compared to medicine and everything, but it's a lot of money. There's the Treescapes um, program that NERC have got out at the moment with, what, 14 million? You know, that, that's a lot of money, but research is not necessarily very useful for its own sake. It's how do you get research into practice? And this, what do we know, what don't we know, what do we need to know, are those questions that we need to ask ourselves, which is why, you know, we started the um, Trees, People in the Built Environment in 2011, and the ICF had the sort of wit to see that it had some value to the tree world. So they've 
have kindly hosted it ever, every three years ever since. Um, but it is, you know, getting this link between research and practice is a, is a constant thing that we've all got to be conscious of. And then you've got evidence-based research for decision-making. So just to be clear for those who don't know, the Trees, People and Built Environment is a conference. It's triennial. The fourth one is coming up in February um, 2021. It's entirely online. Um, you can find details of that on the Institute of Chartered Foresters, TPBE4. And um, bookings are available now. And not only is that a two-day event with the most incredible speakers, some of whom have been mentioned um, during this conversation, there will be events leading up to that, all part of that ticket with interviews and special seminars. If you're listening to this and you care about the outside world, if you're a, an architect, an engineer, an arboriculturalist, a landscape architect, a climate change expert, then this conference will bring together all of those streams. And there will be, there are the most incredible lineup that you can see. So big plug um we don't normally plug things so openly on our podcast but it absolutely chimes with everything that we've talked about today we feel that this one is especially important in climate change so forgive me sue but i i know that you're heavily involved with um that conference as am i and um i just felt i want to say more about it and it's got a broad steering group and a broad range of partners so come along all you built environment people and support it the other thing I, I noticed on your website, which I didn't know about, was uh, Teach the Future. So Teach the Future is a, is a student-led campaign. I applied for the job to be on the adult advisory board, and I'm pleased to say I got it. So they have got an adult advisory board, but basically everything that's done is actually led by the students. And the students are all ages from, you know, the youngest ones I've come across been about 10, but, you know, right through to tertiaries. And what they're saying is that climate and ecological education must be embedded throughout the school curriculum. Some countries do have it from nursery right through. And it's, it's sort of absolutely necessary now that this is what happens. It's not something just to have in geography or science, should you happen to take those topics. It's actually part of what you do. And there's actually no reason why your French conversation class can't be on climate change. You know, it doesn't have to be on how to order coffee in the restaurant in Paris or something. Or where my aunt's pen is. Oh, where did it go? Yeah. I know, I know. Yeah. For, I'm sorry if that <laughs> probably means nothing to many, many people. But when I was at school in the early 80s, it was, see, I can't speak for it. La plume de, la plume de ma tante. That's <laughs> la plume de ma tante. Anyway. You know, and other, other use, useless phrases unless yes, you've got an aunt yes. with missing pen. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Teach the Future is student-led. They have got a website, um, Teach the Future. It's climate action, education. And they're also asking for very sensible things from government. Not only can we change the curriculum to embed climate and ecological um, education throughout the process, which so that, so that you actually have a generation coming on that's much more environmentally literate than I'm afraid a lot of us are. I mean, come on, we're sitting here. I, I, I've done my fair share of traveling and air travel. I haven't flown since 1996 when the penny kind of dropped. We have been profligate as, as a kind of generation. You know, we had the best of times and we didn't use it terribly sensibly, which is why we're still talking about some of the things we've always had to talk about. But these kids really get it and they're passionate about it. They're so coherent and clear. And I get an email from a 14-year-old in Teach the Future, which has got 
more clarity and succinctness than I get from most other people, you know, adults I deal with. Yeah, and they've terribly sensibly, you know, they're trying to get the government, can you please retrofit our schools? If our buildings represented what we need, it would actually show our fellow students, our teachers, our parents, other members of the public, what needs to happen, you know, can we have the curriculum and then the young will teach the old, There's no doubt about it. One of our interviews was the most inspiring young entomologist who's 13, who has been working with a group in the Cairngorms to study shining guest ants and all sorts of rare insects. It's on the tree insects with Ant Boy, Zada Johnson. And when you hear the knowledge that young people have and the passion, it's it's really uplifting and very necessary and it really does shine some hope. Can people get involved with Teach the Future? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've got quite a lot of built environment organisations. I, I think actually it's ICF on it. Professional institutions are very welcome. Um, I can't remember what's exactly how many people we've got on the website. I mean, there are a lot of professional institutions, so organisations, companies, financial support, anything that anybody chooses to help their campaign. The one thing that we are very conscious of as the Adult Advisory Board is that we're just responding. We, we kind of respond and help where we can, but, but they don't need us to lead it. They've actually, they're ahead of us. They've got it. So, Sue, tell us about the very latest guy that came out last month. Trees and Design Action Group is always keen to partner with other organisations and we belong to the Green Infrastructure Partnership which is managed by the TCPA, the Town and Country Planning Association and the Town and Country Planning Association have been working on a European project called European Green Cities and they have been producing small guidance documents to do with that. So we were talking, the TCPA and Keith Saker, who's a TDAG trustee as well as um, Barcham Trees and I about what was a missing bit and we thought actually one of the things that's missing is empowering the developer or the council, those who are commissioning tree planting. What should they expect? What do they need to know in order to commission successful tree planting? And what should they expect to you know, get? So th that little document is actually just a, a guide for clients, really. It starts with what have we got already? And that is one of the fundamental principles throughout many of your documents. Look at what's already there albeit you know your tree population the ground conditions it starts from those first principles and finally sue what is your dream scenario my dream scenario where we're sitting today i'm locked down in wales till the 9th of november um covid is still sort of roaring away out there i think my dream scenario is that we actually all wake up get eyes wide open and see that we can actually do it differently and if we did it differently you know, would actually be better and we'd all be happier and, and enjoy things more. Nature would certainly thank us. The environment would thank us. But I think people would thank us. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Beautifully put. And uh, thank you so much for your time. OK, thanks, Sharon. That for me is just another example, as if another example were needed of the way that things, again, are interlinked. I really hope people take a look at the website at www.tdag.org.uk and look at those free downloadable resources. And next week, it's art and literature. I know we did say that it would be this week, but we sneaked Sue in in between. 
And well worth it if you ask oh, me. Oh yeah, well absolutely. Worth it. So join us again next week on The Tree Lady Talks. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button because we want more subscriptions. And also, if you think this podcast is going to be interesting to a friend, please send them the link.